Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to be studying there. We're going to read a little bit further in, but just start moving that way. Someday, every one of us here who have been justified freely by Christ's grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, who have received the endless life that those who become a part of Jesus Christ have, we will be a part of the ultimate singing of the hallelujah chorus. Now, in the English language, in the English culture, for me to say hallelujah and chorus together, immediately, you know, it, it's like a Google search that comes up instantly. In most people, when they hear hallelujah chorus, they think of what? Yeah, Christmas, Handel's Messiah, and all that. that, that is, that's a good connection, because actually, the last verse that he studied before he wrote the hallelujah chorus is right here in chapter 5. But for just a moment, I want to talk to you about the ultimate hallelujah chorus that, that's in the scripture. But before I do that, let me tell you about the one you've all heard of. It was in April of 1741. A German composer, Frederick Handel, was living in London, an English-speaking country. Uh, he was bankrupt. Uh, he was experiencing, doctors today can't figure out, maybe it was like a pinched nerve or something like that, but he had a burning sensation that was paralyzing him. He couldn't work. He couldn't stand. He was just so bankrupt, paralyzed by pain. Uh, he had become so betrayed by his fellow people in the music circles because he had achieved some notoriety. He wrote oratorios. Uh, and he wrote them in different languages. And so he had earned his living that way and become known, but he was turned on. And most people felt that his music was kind of like has been, you know, from yesteryear. Now it was before we had golden oldie, you know, radio stations that keep the old ones going. And, and so in 1741, in April, Handel was depressed, bankrupt, in physical pain, a has been vilified by his friends and so he was holed up in his apartment kind of not doing anything and as he was just making it just living going through life a friend stopped by and brought him a little sheaf of papers and this this is a Christian friend and this Christian friend had written down this is before printers copy machines you know computers typewriters had written down in longhand 52 passages of scripture. I'm not sure if it was one a week for a year. I don't know, but there were 52 of them. And in this handwritten British script, they knocked on his door and brought it to him. And they said, this is in April. And they said, you're depressed, you're bankrupt, you're in incredible physical pain. Here you go. This is a message from the God of the universe, from the word of God. And so Handel took that and began reading it, and that was in April, and his servants say that for three weeks he locked himself into, well, some say 22 days, some say 23, some say 24, but it was more than three weeks. He locked himself into his room, and they would put trays of food outside, and they would come back, and hardly anything had been touched. But for three weeks he holed up in there, and then when he came out in, in the summer, after the three weeks into May and in early June, he walked out holding 260 pages of music and script. And that's what we know as what? Handel's Messiah. So let me just read to you from the history book, uh, because 
In April of 1741, the German composer Handel was bankrupt, imperiled by paralyzing pain, betrayed by his friends, and depressed, and it looked like his composing career was over. And into this devastating time in Handel's life, a friend presented him with 52 scripture passages, and from a season of prayerfully reading these passages, Handel's soul became enraptured with the beauty of God Almighty who reigns. Now, just for a second, think about Did anything change? He still had the bum back. He still was in debt. He still was a German living in England, you know, and the, the cultural tensions back then of that. I don't think anybody retracted their horrible, you know, slanderous comments about him, and all the people still felt he was a has-been. But the only thing that changed is Handel's perspective went from looking down at this mess that his life had gotten to, his life was still in a mess. But he just lifted his perspective up on the almighty God who reigns. That's, I mean, I've read this. I've read many different versions and many different uh, histories of this moment. And I don't see that, that his back got healed and his bills got paid. His, just, his perspective changed. But keep going and reading the history. In the summer of 1741, his servants were quoted as saying, and by the way, the newspapers, he was notor notorious enough or known enough that people were still interviewing his, the people that took care of him, his servants. And they were quoted as saying that for those three plus weeks while he was holed up in his apartment, he was praying or he was weeping or he was staring into eternity. That's interesting. That's an actual quote from a 241-year-ago British paper that that that's what was going on. Well, then came Handel's Messiah. And when he booked the concert hall for his farewell composition, now, he was such a has-been that he had enough money or, or enough friends or enough know, you know, being known that he was able to book a concert hall that seated 600 people, and he said he was going to do his farewell concert that he had just written for 22 or 23 or 24 days. And the word on the street was, and it's in the newspapers, that he was no longer thought to be able to produce anything that was worthy of London's audiences. So nobody's opinion of him changed, even though his feeling and his perspective changed. Well, when he emerged with those 200 and almost 60 pages of oratorio, we now know as Handel's Messiah, in those famed three solid weeks of round-the-clock work, he had just finished what we today know as the most well-known, the most often performed choral composition of the Western world. So Handel's Messiah, by the way, he wrote it with Easter in mind. It was a resurrection piece, and we've kind of moved it to Christmas. But he wrote it thinking of Christ's resurrection and glory. But those words, 260 pages of, of his notes. It's a three-hour oratorio. Just the 52 scriptures, if you read them carefully, take 30 minutes to read. And they're all in his oratorio. But all that was based on those passages from God's Word. And three of those passages have become some of the best known. So we're in chapter 5, but keep turning to chapter 19. Because I just want to, or I mean, sorry, chapter 11. Go to chapter 11, and then we'll go to 19. But I just want to read for you three of the passages. Now, the last one from which was birthed Handel's Messiah is from chapter 5, and we're going to come back to that. But I just thought that this morning, I want you to see how 
words that you can see just with your eyes. You know, a lot of people only read the Bible with their eyes. It's, they, their eyes just go across them, and they go, mm-hmm, and they can phonetically sound them out, you know, they went to school, you know, and they just read them. But Handel, with his back problems and his bankruptcy and his emotional problems and everything else, read these words with his heart. Completely changed his life. And it became, the only way we know his name today is, not because of his previous works, but because those 52 passages he started reading with his heart and it completely changed his life. Chapter 11, and we'll read verse 15 and then we'll go on to chapter 19. You follow along. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's word. You follow along and see if you don't hear music, you know, in your minds as I read these words. Then, this is chapter 11 of Revelation, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world. And we would add, and of his Christ. And of his Christ. But can you see it? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And Handel thought, bankruptcy, back problems, God's still reigning. And I can either choose to focus on my what everyone thinks of me or on the God who reigns. Okay, now go to chapter 19 of Revelation and I need verse 6. We got to just keep with the score he read. Here we go, 19.6. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying and this is the Greek form of the Hebrew and in, in Greek, it's Alleluia, but it's just translating Hallelujah. So that's why Handel put in the Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And then move with your eyes down to verse 16. And he had on his robes and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wow. And nothing changed. In Handel's life, except he started reading the Bible with his heart, not just with his eyes. And his soul was so enraptured, he went into a 22 or 3 or 4 day marathon, and he wrote 260 pages of the most repeated music in the Western world, perhaps in the whole world, but we don't know everything in the Eastern world, but the most well-known in the Western world, just by reading with his heart. Wow. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that we who know you as Lord and Savior, who have been justified freely by your grace through the redemption that you alone, O Christ, can accomplish. It's a miracle. Salvation is not something we do or have done, but it's what you alone can do and have done within us by your grace. O Lord, how I pray that we would begin to realize that the words that, that so flame to life in Handel's soul are the words that you actually gave to us. The only reason we have this book we hold in our hands is because you gave it to us as a gift from Jesus Christ to his church to touch our hearts. And we're your church, and we need touching. And I pray many of us have gotten 
handled uh, in our lives. And, and all we think about is our, our backs and our bankruptcies and what people think of us and that we're has-beens and nothing is left for us. And you want to just let us see the real hallelujah course that we're going to be a part of because of your grace and the place it's going to be performed and how we will not stand to our feet, but we will fall on our faces because you are so great. Work in our hearts. And I pray that by the end of this time we spend in your word, that each one of us will be crying out for your spirit to transform us by your word and for your glory. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, the ultimate hallelujah chorus will be performed in heaven. And that is something that's going to be wonderful to think about. We're going to be a part of the real choir. We're going to be singing the real hallelujahs in a very real place that is described as the throne of the God of heaven. Now, what's amazing is over the last 200 plus years since Handel wrote these words, professional musicians have been asked to participate. They didn't ask them if they were born again. They didn't ask if they were redeemed. They didn't ask them if they were blood-bought Christians. They just asked if they were the very best in orchestral and choral work. And they performed. And the interesting thing is that the scriptures tell us that the only ones that are invited to sing the ultimate hallelujah chorus are those who are registered in heaven. And so only the redeemed, only the born again, only the saved get to be in the scene we're going to see today. And what's amazing is that saints are invited to come before the throne of God to sing the words that we know of as the closing hallelujah chorus but it's only for the redeemed. And people on earth for 200 plus years have stood to their feet at the sounds of these hallelujahs. By the way, there's, you talk about, you read history. You know what's neat about history? You can read about five versions of the same event. And, and so you know, in reading all the hymn histories and, and in all the secular histories of, of, of Handel's life and everything else, one whole strain is that the reason people stood is because King George III, I think it was, was so deaf and hard of hearing that he went to all the public things and, and he went to Handel's Messiah. But in his deafness, he thought they were playing the British national anthem. So he didn't want to miss it. So he stood up. And so everybody didn't know why he stood up. So they stood up. And that started. Now others say it was Queen Victoria. I mean, it doesn't matter. But the tradition is people stand. And even today, people look around and they expect someone to stand. But you know, at the sounds of these hallelujahs in heaven, we fall on our faces. You know, the real response to the hallelujah chorus, for people that really know the words and they really know what they were written for, because Handel was merely quoting God, the real response should be perform it in a, in a place where people can lay right down on their faces. Because that's what we're going to do in, in the ultimate performance of this around the throne of God. Our souls forever freed from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin in heaven. Don't find these words to be an oratorio. It's a redemption-driven song of worship. So think of the words. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah, the kingdoms of this world 
have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, even if you're in debt and you have searing back pain and nobody likes you. Hallelujah, the Lord of lords forever and ever. Hallelujah, King of kings forever and ever. Hallelujah, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you look in your Bibles in Revelation 19 where we're reading, you'll find that there are four hallelujahs. And Handel was so overwhelmed with the the idea of hallelujah, which by the way is an imperative that God be praised. He was so overwhelmed that he repeated it an extra time and that, that great chorus ends with hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And that's, that's a reminder of the song we're going to be singing someday before the Lord. Well, let's go back to chapter 5 because I want to show you this morning the last passage that Handel read before he wrote the Hallelujah Chorus. It's right where we are. And that's the connection. He was reading Revelation 5. And that was the last one, the little sheaf of papers handwritten by his dear friend, which, by the way, is reproduced in the original score that's in the museum that Handel wrote. You can see those handwritten verses. Every one of the 52 passages nowadays, you can just look them up online just to read them takes over half an hour if you read them with your heart because they're so moving but in your bibles in revelation 5 9 we've come to the third doxology of the worship service captured in the bible from heaven now remember when we read revelation we're reading something that the only way we know these things think about how it even starts it starts with a guy that's a prisoner of the roman empire of the most powerful of all the roman emperors in in his era who had banished him to patmos and here he is in exile out there and you can never get exiled from the lord you can never be out of range of god he comes to where john was and the lord jesus christ that john hadn't seen since he was probably a, a late teen remember he was called young three plus years with Jesus, probably in his late teens, early 20s. And he hears that voice again that, that he so treasured. And he turns around, sees Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, you're in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and I'm here with you. And he gives him this. He said, this is a gift to my church. It's interesting. Revelation is a gift to the church. It's not a gift to Israel. It's not a gift to the tribulation saints. There are going to be going through it it's a gift to the church what's it for what's well, to get us ready it's supposed to be a blessing the lord says those that that have these words and read them and hear them not just read them with their eyes and not just hear them with their ears but but read them with their hearts you're going to be blessed well how are we blessed well what we notice is that this doxology, this third one, is recorded differently than the first two. The first two are in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, those first two appear to be chanting antiphonally. And, and we're not sure whether, you know, after every word something is said, or if they say all the words and then the other side says, but it's just this chant. But all of a sudden in chapter 5, verse 9, look what it says in verse 9. And they sang a new song. 
Now for John and for us who study the Bible, immediately our minds go back to where's the first time new song shows up and it's in the, the book of the Psalms. And it says, he has put a new song in my mouth, even praise to my God. He's lifted me up out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a solid rock. And it's David talking about the, the, the work of salvation and how God redeemed him from destruction and washed away his sins and set him on, on something that would not allow him to sink anymore and he had a new song of salvation so there's a new song it's for the redeemed and look at these seven phrases you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain right in the middle of the fourth one and have redeemed us to god by your blood the fifth one out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation verse 10 has this the sixth line and have made us kings and priests to our god and then the last line, and we shall reign on the earth. So that, that is what Handel was reading and on through the end of the chapter when he wrote the hallelujah. But think of the thrill of experiencing the real hallelujah chorus around the throne. See, sometimes, again, we're, we're all guilty of this. We just read the Bible. Oh, Got to read my passage for today. We read it. And we don't take time to step back and think, wait a minute, where is this happening? Who is speaking? What's going on? Why is this even here? Why am I even reading it? Why did God intend for me? And so for just a moment, I want you to think of the thrill of experiencing the hallelujah chorus around the throne. Now, you know, you can sing in a lot of places. You can sing in Carnegie Hall. You can sing at the Met. You can sing in some of the greatest opera houses in Europe or, you know, that gigantic one in Sydney, Australia that's so famous and so, you know, everybody wants to go there. You know, I have a friend, by the way, uh, who is saying at all those places. Uh, Phil Webb's his name. In fact, this is the only church. We don't live close enough to Chicago. Over the years, when I pastored near Boston, he would show up when he was singing in the Boston whatever. He'd, in fact, I still have a habit. I still, throughout the message, I look across the back row and I look at everybody's faces because Phil is so unforgettable. I can always, he's not here this morning. But uh, I always still look for him. It's a habit I have because when I was in Rhode Island, when I was in Tulsa, whenever he was performing, he would show up in one of the services sitting in the back row. And so I had a custom. And, and I, I wouldn't tell anybody that I noticed he'd showed up. And I'd say, oh, hey, Phil, you're sitting on the back row this, this morning. Could you just stand up and sing your favorite song for us? Oh, people would start sinking under their chairs. They'd think, oh, don't call on me. You know, I, I don't want to be one of his friends. He just points me out in the service. And, you know, Phil is built like Pavarotti. You know, he's this wide and this high and just built for sound. And he loved it. And I remember the first time he did this in, in Rhode Island. I mean, it was a very, you know, straight-laced, dark suit, white shirt. Everybody sat in the same place and no one smiled. You know, that kind of, kind of place. And they were just shocked that wasn't on the order of service and everybody looked and he stood and he just, he started singing Amazing Grace with one of those opera voices that's just, and I mean it just reverberated through the place. When he got done, every person was craning and turning and people were looking down from the balcony trying to see who was singing. And what I thought is, that's the kind of voice that we see in Revelation. 
And by the way, all, he did the same thing in Tulsa. He did the same thing many times in Tulsa. So I just wish that we could move the church a little closer to Chicago, you know, and have him slip in sometimes so you could get a sense of what this kind of singing is like, that's thunderous. But you know what he told me? He said, he said, I've, I've been in all those places. And he says, you know what? After a while, singing Italian operas, he says, you don't really care where you are and you don't even think about what you're doing. He said, it just becomes a job. You know, he gets, I don't know, 10, 20,000 bucks when he sings. You know, I guess you would remember that part. I hope he does. But you know what he said? It's just a job. And he says, I'm sitting there singing, oh, and he said, I'm thinking about my jet skis. You know, he says, I can sing and do all the stuff without, I can go through all the motions because I've done it so many times. And he said, it doesn't matter where I am. He said, I don't get a thrill out of the Met, you know, or the Sydney Opera House. He said, but you know what? He told me when he sings these songs, that's when it's not just a job. And it's not just what he knows. You know, I, I cringe sometimes when I hear people say, is all we're going to do in heaven is sing? <laughs> you ever seen it like that? It's like, would well, you want to go the other place? You know? <laughs> I mean, or are you going the other place, you know? Because it's to think about, do you know what the song, the redemption-driven song that we're looking at is? It's, be, it's not forced. In heaven, we can't believe he loved us and loosed us from our sins. And we can't believe that Jesus himself took the, the, the punishment I deserve. God treated Jesus like he did every sin that I committed and then God robes me and treats me like I'm Jesus. You know, I mean, like I have his righteousness. And that exchange is why we sing forever. The church of the firstborn, registered in heaven, are called around the throne to sing for the glory of God while God punishes the world for its rebellion and rests back the control of the world from Satan. That's when we sing the real hallelujah chorus. And these lyrics that God has written teach us something. And when we hear them in our hearts, you know, I was thinking about this morning, uh, if you have uh, one of the apps on your smartphone, your camera becomes a reader, and you can go around, I mean, people do this all the time, you know, you can go through Walmart and go, and it'll tell you, oh, cheaper on Amazon, go home and order it online, you know. And, and you, can, you can use those apps to read those, those little barcodes and those QR codes. Did you know if your camera's not on, you can do this all day, and you know, nothing will happen? Did you know a lot of people read the Bible that way? And they say, I don't get anything out of it. That's because your camera's not on. You, you aren't seeing by faith and you are not allowed you're not inviting the spirit of god to to help you see with your soul to read with your heart and to allow the spirit of god to transform and unleash the purpose of god that's why people say oh yeah i just read my bible yeah that's like using your camera without ever turning it on or using your phone without the battery it's it's worthless well each of these seven phrases, look at chapter 5, verse 9, declares a facet of Christ's eternal character that can come alive and be unleashed as we allow the Spirit of God to transform us through these words. 
And so what we have before us is in clear, understandable English, the exact wording of how we will worship Jesus in heaven when we're glorified. Now remember, we, we, yeah. The whole way, if you, just, if you just read Revelation like a child, what you would find, you open up in chapter 1, it says this is a gift to the church, and you find church 22 times in the first three chapters. Church, 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 church. And then you never see the word again. Why? Because the church has moved from Patmos and, and where John was in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira to up in chapter 4 around the throne. And what we're seeing is ourselves in the future. And we see how we will, with glorified hearts and minds and bodies and Phil Webb Pavarotti voices from the back row, be able to sing. But it won't be about our voices then. It's all about him. And what we saw, and we saw this last week, number one, how we worship Jesus in heaven is, in Revelation 5, they worship Jesus as the owner of the universe. That's the first line. You are worthy to take the scroll. And number two, they worship Jesus as the judge of all to open its seals. Remember, those seals are like pulling the pin on the grenade. It unleashes the wrath of God. And only Jesus can unleash the wrath of God because he is the judge of all. And thirdly, they worship Jesus as the lamb that was slain for the world, for you were slain. And by the way, that word slain means, uh, it speaks of a, a sharp knife slitting the throat. It speaks of a helpless lamb. You know, sheep are, have you ever been to, you know, like we went to New Zealand to watch some of the largest sheep ranches, Bonnie and I did, and they were, they were uh, you know, they'd sheared them, and then it was time, and, and they, they let us see how sheep, they can all be in a line, and the one stands there like this, and they go, it dies, and they pull it away, and the next one steps up and goes. I mean, humans, we would run. We would stampede. Sheep don't. They're just helpless. And Jesus is portrayed in the Scripture as the one who had all the power of the universe, but he helplessly stood before the murderers as they killed him. He was slain. That's what that word slain means, slit. Willingly allowed himself to be slain for the world. Fourthly, and have redeemed us to God by your blood. They worship Jesus as the Redeemer. Do you remember when liberalism, you know what a liberal is, a liberal is someone that denies the deity of Christ and they, they deny the inspiration of the scriptures and the miracles, and they also don't like blood. And so they don't like there is a fountain filled with blood. And they don't like, you know, John Newton's for such a wretch as me and there or such a worm as I. They don't like any of that terminology. And so they started extracting especially blood but you know what we're going to sing about in heaven? Look what it says. You have redeemed us. It's the middle, middle phrase of the seven. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. He's the only one that could do it, and he did it. And he did it with his blood. And they worship Jesus as Savior. They say, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, Jesus said he came to seek and to save the what? The lost. He's a Savior. He, he comes to look for the lost. In fact, Titus, the missionary church planner that Paul commissioned went to Crete, he, in his book, that Paul, the letter Paul wrote to him, in Titus, God is called our Savior. God is a Savior. Jesus is a Savior. And it worked. 
Jesus is the one who came to seek and save, and his great commission plan succeeded. And we can see and hear those from every branch of humanity around the throne, safe, redeemed, worshiping. And then look at verse 10. They, the sixth element, it says, and has made us kings and priests to our God. They worship Jesus as the great high priest. He's the one, Jesus is the one who brings us into the kingdom of God. We are under his domain, and he is the one that ever lives to intercede for us and then makes us his priests in a kingdom, in a holy nation. And we have intimate access to God. Did you know every time that I open this Bible, a, a direct conduit, to the very throne where Jesus Christ ever lives to intercede for me is opened, and I have unfettered, unparalleled access every time I open this. You know, that, that changes my Bible reading. See, I meet with the Lord through his word. He talks, he communicates through his word. You know George Mueller, the orphan guy? Do you remember what he, he wrote in his journal? He said, you know, I started out the first many years of my life. I used to spend half hour, 45 minutes, an hour praying. And he says, my mind would wander, and I felt so awful, and I would try so hard. But he said, I knew I was supposed to pray. And he says, and then finally, he said, I realized that I should spend the first part of my time in the Word until the Word of God opened the way. And, and through the Word, I started talking to God. And he says, and then I would flow from that. He says, the word refined in John 17, sanctified me and made me through its truth able to talk. And he says, and then I'd pray for an hour after I read. And, and what a wonderful thing that Jesus, our great high priest, has done that. And look at the end of verse 10. They worship Jesus as the king of kings. And it says, and we shall reign on the earth. And Christ promised that we were joint heirs with him, and we are. So real quickly... That's the content. What is the setting? And see, that's what I think we miss sometimes. What's the setting of the singing we're going to do? Well, back up to chapter 4. I just want to re remind this. Number one, the setting of the song is first the throne of God. Verse 5 of chapter 4. And, and from the throne proceed lightnings, thunderings, and voices, and seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. So the first thing we see is this throne. And, and the scriptures say it's surrounded by emerald green. It's got a rainbow only if, did you know rainbows are actually 360s? We just only see half of them because there's land in the way. But in heaven, look at verse 6. Before the throne was a sea of glass, crystal clear. Do you know what I believe we're going to see in heaven? We're going to see that throne sitting on this glass, kind of like, you know, thin as saran wrap, crystal clear, see through it. And you can look down and you're going to see the rest of the rainbow. Because actually it says that it's completely encircled by a green rainbow of color. And so this throne is sitting there out of which proceeds lightnings and thunders and everything, and we have this sea of glass that we can see colors and lights and objects reflected. But, but look at, at the next part of verse 6. And in the midst of the throne, around the throne, are these four living creatures. And we studied those. We spent a whole time looking at cherubim, everywhere they are in the Bible. But basically, these are four orbiting like little satellites around the throne, up in the air, and between them, lightning is going. I mean, that's going to be... I mean, even the most distracted people will not be distracted in heaven. Can you imagine? You know, just... Wow. In fact, I, I told in first service, I had this fellow I led to the Lord at 36,000 feet. He was a very wealthy anesthesiologist going big game hunting, but drinking those little 
cracker barrel size syrup bottle, you know, the alcohol they give away on their cell, you know, they're only about this big. He bought a whole tray of them. He was just going like this. He was scared to death to fly. And I was reading my Bible and I thought, oh, this drunk sitting next to me. We were the only two on the airplane. Can you believe it? Out of Tulsa because they fixed planes there, so they sent them out empty. And so I'm on one side, and they seated us across from each other, and I was turned, and I was going to watch this boozer, you know, and I was studying my Bible, and he was tipping off another one. He says, hey, what are you studying over there? And I said, the Bible. And I didn't even look at him anymore, and he says, I have a question for you. I said, and I didn't look at him. I said, what is it? He says, my housekeeper says I'm going to hell. I said, you are. <laughs> and I, I, I kept studying. And I thought, here we are at 36,000 feet. We're the only two people sitting there. I'm reading the Bible. He's drinking and asking me how to be saved. And I turned and led him to the Lord, and it was so sweet. And I discipled him for many years, but in his initial time, he was so rich. He went big game hunting that trip, and he really did get saved because, uh, I mean, he now serves the Lord greatly. But about a month later, he says, hey, you want to come with me? He says, I've got front row seats. He says, I'm flying in my jet. He says, you want to come? I said, to what? He says, the Babylon concert with Mick Jagger. He says, I'm going to be in the front row. He says, you can just feel it. Your hair goes back. It's so loud and the bombs and everything. I says, no, I don't want to go. But I says, when you get back, I said, we'll do a study in Revelation 18, what God thinks of Babylon. And I said, and why I would never sit in the front row adoring a fornicator like Mick Jagger. He didn't, he went, but he didn't enjoy, you know, <laughs> the Rolling Stones. And and I thought about the thrill for him was sitting there with that loud show. No one will be distracted with the show God's going to do. Because it doesn't end there. Keep reading. Look, look what it says. These creatures are flying around. And look what it says in verse 8 of chapter 4. And they're not resting night or day saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when they say that, look at verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the 24 elders, verse 10 fall down. You know what's interesting? In the real hallelujah chorus, they don't stand up. They fall down. And by the position of prostration on face before throne, you say, you're God, I'm not. You alone are worthy, I'm not. It's very interesting. Well, let's go to some lessons before we go because we started these and I want to finish them this week. Go back to chapter 5 and verse 9. And we saw last week, number one, uh, the seven lessons from the first song of heaven. Number one, the application is we should surrender back like in heaven we're doing, saying that you're worthy to take the scroll. We should surrender back to Jesus the reality on a daily basis that he is our creator and he owns us. And if you made me, you made me for a purpose, and if you own me, there's something you want me to do. And that's how we check in every day. Secondly, reflect on Jesus as the judge. You're worthy to open the seals. We know in heaven that Jesus is going to judge sinners. But we know that prior to this moment, he is going to analyze our life. Did you know if he created us and redeemed us, he has a very specific plan and all he's going to do is hold up that plan against our life and show us by burning away all the parts that weren't part of his plan. And, and there's going to be tears. 
You know what the best thing to do is? To say, hey, I got a day ahead of me, if you tarry and if you let me live, what did you want me to do? Isn't it neat, you know, when you're raising children, when they don't all just run from the table after the meal, they stop and they say, hey, is there anything you want us to do? Can we help? You know, they're not endlessly playing, that they, they say, is there anything you want me to do around the house? It's nice when a husband does that too. Did you know, it's, it's wonderful to come back and say, hey, is there anything that you want me to do? And that's what every day is for us. And we say, Lord, you're the judge of all. I want to do what you want me to do with my life. And that you, it says, for you were slain. Be grateful Jesus is the lamb that was slain for your sins. I mean, when a man in the armed forces has a buddy that takes a grenade for him, he'll never forget that moment of that poof. And he didn't die. And that one did. And you think about that every day. The one who took the grenade of sin for us is right next to us. He's saying, hey, you going to read my letter I wrote you? You going to talk to me today? Are you going to spend your whole day? You know, I, I, I listen to you. I'm not so old, I can't hear. It lost my hair, but not my hearing. I heard some young, young ladies talking. They were just in the youth, and they were saying, you know, and they talk a little loud, and so I was just, I wasn't really eavesdropping, but it was interesting. You know, to hear little girls talking, they says, yeah, yeah, every time I put something up on an Instagram, all those older ladies comment on it. They says they spend a lot of time online. And I thought, wow, the little younger people are saying, you know, we know we spend a little too much time online, and so are those old people spending too much time online. Do you ever think about how much the computer has robbed us of prolonged Bible study, prolonged prayer, prolonged meditation, scripture memory. It's almost like we either hurry through that or we do it later because we've got to keep up with this whole cyber world. It's amazing. Jesus is the one that was slain for us and he sits next to us waiting and we're distracted with endless trivia. Uh, then last time we, we ended with the middle. Look at what it says. You've redeemed us to God by your blood, and I told you we need to unleash as a, the powerful redeemer into our life. Do you know how we do that? We did that song. We, we closed with that. Before the throne of God above, the first thing is you have to acknowledge Jesus is the intercessor. He, he is standing at the right hand of God, interceding for us right now. This very moment, Jesus, Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says, ever lives to intercede for me. And he is my mediator. But how do you unleash that into your life? The second stanza of that hymn. When Satan tempts me to despair. Reminds me of how much I am distracted and how much I fail to hear his voice and how often I do allow my flesh to dominate. And tells me of the guilt within because I know I'm painfully aware of my own sin. What I can do is either become more and more like Frederick Handel and just get all depressed and live in the muck and mire of my problem. Or, like the hymn writer says, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Do you know how you unleash the Redeemer into your life? By rejoicing in the fact that by one sacrifice, past tense, 2,000 years ago, he has forever freed us and forgiven us. And you, you disarm the devil when you look up and say, because the sinless Savior died, my guilty soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Jesus Christ and pardon me. That's how we unleash him. Real quickly, look at the next one. Uh, it says, you've saved us out of every kindred, tongue, and tribe and nation. 
we need to seek to show the same compassion for Jesus Christ. And so what I want you to do is, you can close your Bible, and we're going to close with the green book, okay? Grab it and turn to number 247. This is a Moody Bible Institute, you know, like in Chicago. A Moody Bible Institute, I heard that alumni, amen. Uh, Moody Bible Institute testimony, this guy named Irving, or Daniel Iverson at the bottom of this, was writing about the fact that only Jesus Christ can give us that heart that he can use. And, and what happens is a lot of us in our Christian lives become a lot like yesterday's lasagna in the refrigerator. You know what it's like? It's cold. And the grease has turned white. And, and if you take a bite of it, it sticks to your mouth. And it's just, you know, you just want to get a napkin and wipe it out. It's just awful. Yesterday's cold lasagna. So what you need to do is to take it on a plate, stick it in the microwave, put a little paper towel on top so that it doesn't make a mess. Boop! And it comes right back to the way it was supposed to be. And what he said is, in 1935, he said, Spirit of the living God, I need you to fall fresh on me. I'm already saved. This is only for people that already have the Spirit of the living God, but I need, I need a refill and I want you to melt me because I'm all cold and I'm like grease that just sticks to my mouth and mold me. I'm not shaped in the way that, that you want me to be and I've, I've kind of gotten conformed to the world, Romans 12, and I want to be molded back to the way you want me and I feel empty, so I want you to fill me because more than anything else, sanctification is a measure of how useful I am to God. I want you to use me. And so he wrote this out as a prayer. So what I thought would be a wonderful way to end would be this. Let's all stand. And if you know this song, you don't have to look at the book. But many people, I'm realizing, don't even know this song. And I'd like to encourage you and challenge you, actually, to apply the song of the redeemed and, and the compassion Christ wants to have. Did you know if you have the compassion of Christ, you'd rather talk to a human being and share the gospel with them than endlessly do trivia that won't matter in a thousand years. But how do we change? By asking the Spirit of God who is waiting to apply the work of Christ into our life. Do you know what the Holy Spirit does? He applies Christ to us. He conforms us to look like Him. He transforms us to act like Him. But He waits to be invited to do that. So this number 247 is one example of a song we can all sing. And if if you sing it not just with your eyes or your voice, but with your heart. He actually responds. And whatever we need, he can melt us. He can remold us back the way we're supposed to be. He can fill us up if we're empty. But most of all, he can use us. And there's no limit to what he wants to do. So if you need to look at your books, keep your eyes open. If you don't, close your eyes. And let's sing as a prayer to the Lord, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God,
And Father in heaven, there are some possibly even in this room right now that don't yet have you by way of your spirit living within them. And I pray that today they would stop the charade, they'd stop the resistance, that they would surrender to your spirit, that they would allow you to draw them to yourself. And if they need to pray and talk with someone, I pray at the end as the elders and the godly Titus two women are here that they would have the joy of leading them to you. And for the rest of us, oh Lord, how I pray that we will invite and welcome and cry out to your spirit to unleash Christ in our lives so that we act like him and think like him and talk about him and have his compassion for every creature and that we would be useful to you, no longer empty or warped or cold. And that's what we're singing about in heaven. And that's what we want to be doing here. We ask that you would accomplish this for your glory in our lives. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you as you go.